Well, good evening, friends. Welcome to our Ash Wednesday service. As we begin this time together, it is our prayer that the Holy Spirit would speak to us afresh and uniquely tonight in this service. And so we want to begin with a simple song recognizing as Pastor Ross's lights the Christ, Pastor Ross lights the Christ candle, that Christ is with us and we can slow down, we can be still. Whatever busyness flurry we've come from, we have a moment to take a deep breath together. Let's do that as we sing. friends, today is Ash Wednesday. It is also Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you. It is the beginning of the season of Lent, and Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter. It is really a preparation, a road to Easter. Um, as Pastor Tira often does for us, she likes us to repeat words, right? Some Greek words or Hebrew words. So I'm going to give you a Greek word to repeat with me. It's called automisos. Automisos. It means self-hatred. And it has nothing to do with Lent. Zero. Nothing to do with Lent. <laughs> you thought. Uh, it is actually, Lent is, uh, comes from this old English word which actually has Germanic roots. And it's lengthen. And it's the days are lengthening. And it actually means springtime. We are leading to Easter and we do so by way of the cross. And so we prepare for Easter with Lent. And yet, Jess, tonight is Ash Wednesday, and the most obvious part, the most memorable part of Ash Wednesday is we eventually walk out of this place with ashes on our forehead, which is admittedly a little weird and uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's not your typical Wednesday night activity to put ashes on your forehead. And because some of you have actually asked, tonight it will not be a heart for Valentine's <laughs> Day on your forehead. <laughs> it will be a cross. <laughs> 
and the cross on our forehead is uncomfortable. Unless you leave this place and go straight home, if you go to the grocery store, if you go to a basketball game, if you go on a Valentine's date, if you go out with friends, you'll have to decide whether you're going to leave that cross there or not. And it's a little awkward. It's uncomfortable. But why ashes, Jess? Why do we do this thing with ashes? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, symbol. It's definitely not you are bad, dirt, ashes. We're back to that. There's no self-hatred in Lent. We're not about that. But it is definitely about death. We start this season reminding ourselves that we're mortal. So think like dirt and ashes, burial, or even cremation. Um, it is a reminder of our humanity. It's a posture of beginning this season with humility. Yeah, it reminds us, and the popular line for this is the one that God speaks to Adam, the first human, in Genesis chapter 3. He says, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Yeah, and it's not just about our own death, though. It's about Christ's death. Um, In Mark chapter 8, and we're in the Gospel of Mark right now, Jesus says, if you want to be one of my disciples, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And so we're following Jesus to his death on the cross. Yeah, and later it's the Apostle Paul who says it so, so well, Galatians 2.20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there's a little bit more, too. We have these ashes on our forehead, and they sometimes might make us wonder, is this the end? Is death the final word? Is there any hope of resurrection? It's like in Ezekiel chapter 37, in the valley of the dry bones, the Lord leads Ezekiel to this place where it's all death, and he says, mortal, can these bones live? But once again, we're on the road to the cross, but also to the road to Easter of resurrection, and our hope is in the life after death. Yeah. One more thing about these ashes. These ashes are not just from the fire pit in my backyard. (laughs) Where are these ashes from, Jess? Well, there's a story in church tradition. Um, A lot of churches get their ashes from last year's palm branches that are burned up. And so that is the tradition we continue at Fellowship as well. These ashes are made out of palm branches that have been burned up. And it's really pointing to the end of the journey of Lent to Holy Week. And what happens during Holy Week is Palm Sunday. Yeah, and it's that Palm Sunday day, that same crowd, the one that sang Hosanna over Jesus as he entered the great city, they sang his praises. The same crowd will turn within a week and be the same one that says, crucify him. And so these are the things that get burned, and the palms become the ashes that we eventually put on our foreheads. Since Christmas, we together at Fellowship Church have been looking to Jesus and calling him our kurios, our Lord. And that's so, so true. Now, as Lent begins, we take a step deeper into that even more, and we recognize together that it's the crucified one who is Lord. And so we put the cross on our foreheads tonight. Friends, let's stand and sing together.
seated. Listen for the word of the Lord from the book that we love, the words of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the gospel of Mark. Woe to you, Ariel. Ariel, the city where David settled, add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. From dust we are, and shall return, and shall return. Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still, as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and still thirsty. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. 
The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. Good evening, Fellowship Church. 
kind of fun to gather together in the evening. A few weeks ago, we were having dinner with some friends of ours, and we were doing what you do at the beginning of a dinner party, gathering around the kitchen, talking a little small talk, when all of a sudden, we were like, where's Tessa? Name changed to protect the innocent. Where is Tessa? We didn't know where she was. And then the husband uh, uh, claimed, well, crazy, but she ended up taking a last-minute trip down to Nashville to see her sister. And after some conversation about how this came to be, the husband kind of ended it with, well, I just gave her the encouragement to do what feels right. And I jokingly said, well, isn't that what life's all about? Just do what feels right. You know, what? if you want to do it, do it if it feels good to you. I mean, that could be the mantra of society today. Couldn't it? Do what feels right. Make yourself comfortable. Live your best. I mean, for example, let's take society's emphasis on self-care, which is not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing when understood rightly. But too often, we're tempted by the marketers to believe that self-care is another form of consumerism. Do what feels right. Go buy that nail service. Do what feels right. Go buy that product that will make you glow and glisten. Or, Or consider clothing, for instance. What makes you feel comfortable seems to be the driving force. We even have a new category for clothes, don't we? Athleisure wear, which I guess are like sweatpants that you can wear to work or something, or or sweatpants that you could wear for athletics, but you never go and do athletics with them on. Now, I'm not being critical because I I love the clothes and they're very comfortable and I wear them almost every Friday and Saturday, but they're another way of saying wear what feels right. Or consider our vehicles even for a minute. You know, as if heat and air conditioning in the car wasn't enough. Now we have heated steering wheels and heated seats. And and that was not enough. So now we have cooling seats and cooling steering wheels to make sure that no matter if we live in the north or the south, we will be comfortable, drive and feel cozy, you might say. I mean, shoot, with the click of a button nowadays, we can warm up our houses or cool them down with a Smart Nest thermostat. We can get food delivered from our favorite restaurant via DoorDash. We can even order groceries and find them on our doorstep from Instacart. And we can pay our bills from the BBW website. We can even watch our favorite movies on Netflix. We kind of live in a culture of comfort, you might say, of doing what feels good, what feels easy, what feels right or so it can seem. And I'm not trying to be hypercritical of some of these very profound medical and technological advances. They do make life better for a lot of people, and they can be good for society. And I'm not advocating that we go and sleep in sandpaper sheets in some primitive home warmed by a fire after we shot our wild game for dinner. But what I do want us to get curious about today is what's our heart's motive in seeking comfort? Why are we so obsessed with being comfortable, with doing what feels right? And are there consequences to blindly following this mantra? It seems to me that the story that Mark 7, that we just heard from Mark 7, has a little bit to say to us about comfort and discomfort. In case you missed it with the back and forth reading, chapter 7 begins with this showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders. If you were here this past Sunday, Pastor Tierra talked about a showdown between Jesus and the homeboys from Nazareth. But here in chapter 7, he's back at it with those pesky religious leaders. 
And interestingly, the presenting issue is what the disciples do before they have a meal. Namely, why don't the disciples wash their hands properly before they eat? But like it is with most presenting issues, it's about much more than that, isn't it? But this is the, th- the instance in which the leader, religious leaders are thrown into frustration with Jesus this time. But why? Why are they so frustrated? What's going on behind the presenting issue? We can peel back the onion a little bit this evening, as Bryce would say a couple weeks ago. For generations, those religious leaders have been providing the, a necessary service to the people of God. They're the ones who helped the everyday people like you and me interpret scripture to live and follow God's way, to be obedient to the law. But like us, there are circumstances that come up in life where the Bible doesn't seem to be explicitly clear on how we're to treat that issue or how we're to treat that law, how to do good, how to be faithful. And this is particularly true for them when it comes to how and when and if they eat. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, is filled with many laws about rules about when you're supposed to eat, how you're supposed to eat, what you're supposed to eat, and at what time and and in what season. A lot could be said about a lot of these dietary laws, but there's two primary driving forces behind the dietary laws. One is the dietary laws held in high esteem the connection between humanity and animals or, or the created order. The things that we consume, the things that they put in their body, they became united to quite literally because they put them inside of them. The mantra that we sometimes say, you are what you eat, would have been very important to the Israelites. Many of the laws that they had were, were seeking to help humanity survive, and not just survive, but thrive and remain healthy by, prohibit, by prohibiting the consumption of certain risky foods and by being clean before you ate them. They they were sanitary in a way. And the second driving force behind these dietary laws was that the food was a practical way for the Israelites to live out their faith. Unlike some other things like circumcision that was hidden, these laws and the dietary laws in particular separated the Israelites from all other people. The food that they ate and the way that they ate it was a way in which they could witness to the fact that they believed differently, that they believed in the one true God. In an important way, and it was an important way for the Israelites to grow in faithful obedience through these dietary rituals and acts of worship. The challenge was that not everything was explicitly laid out in the law. There's questions about how best to clean and what parts to eat and what parts not to eat, how to cook it properly and with who and when do you cook it. And so the religious leaders created practices, traditions, you might say, on how to best eat food based on their interpretation of the law. And so they made rules about eating that weren't explicitly laid out in the Bible that they asked other people to follow. Like, how long do you scrub your hands when you're washing? Not just both sides twice, but you have to sing the whole doxology while you're washing your hands. 
about like what soaps you're supposed to use. Not just the moisturizing stuff. Make sure it's the antibiotic fair trade stuff from Lebanon. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Or how to dry your hands. Don't just use a paper towel. No, 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 no. Use the air dryer and make sure you push the button with your elbow as to make sure your hands don't get any sanitary, anything unsanitary on them. Interestingly, in our story from Mark chapter 7, no one spells out what the disciples did wrong. The religious leaders don't make any claims about how they should have done it. Jesus doesn't even address the issue in his response to them. And the gospel writer Mark doesn't give us a parenthetical commentary like he did about the the washing of the the pots and the pans. What is clear from Mark chapter 7, though, is that the disciples were not following all the rules the religious leaders had laid out about the tradition of eating. And the point that Jesus seems to be making is that the religious leaders had made these rules, these interpretations of the law, more important than the word of God itself, more important than the heart of the law. Put another way, a way that we sometimes talk about around here, they had focused a lot on the boundary of the fence rather than the center of it. And Jesus confronts this by reiterating himself twice for emphasis in verse eight and nine, when he says, you abandon the commandment of God and hold tight to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. The religious leaders had misordered tradition and the commandments of God. They found a lot of comfort in knowing exactly how to interpret the law. And they sought more comfort by controlling how other people lived out the faith through the traditions. And then they could rest in their interpretations of the law as perfect. And in their contentment, they totally missed the heart of God's law as a vehicle for other people to love God and love others. It's almost as if their comfort in knowing tradition, their own assurance in what was right, blinded them from seeing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, literally standing in their midst. Join me back in the kitchen with my friends for dinner. My buddy's wife, Tessa, was away, but I didn't tell you the whole story about why she was away. I did, t- I did tease him for his line about doing what feels right, but the heart behind that comment was actually quite sacrificial, quite discomforting, you might say. You see, Tessa's sister, living down in Nashville, was pregnant that morning, or was pregnant, and at church that morning, she fainted in the service, and she couldn't come wake up right away. The ambulance rushed in and took her to the hospital in Nashville to be checked out and to figure out what's going on. Thankfully, she's okay, and the baby's still okay inside of her. But Tessa, living in Holland, wanted to be make sure that she was with her sister in her time of need. My buddy's permission or encouragement for her to go and do what seemed right in the moment was an act of discomfort because in going, they were willing to sacrifice the funds necessary for a last-minute day of one-way flight from Grand Rapids to Nashville. 
He was saying, I'm willing to single parent our kids for the next couple of days for indefinite amount of time so that you can be with your sister. And they were voluntarily making their life more difficult, more uncomfortable to do what they felt was right in the moment. They intentionally made their lives uncomfortable in order to be with another in their time of weakness, in their time of humility, or in their time of humbleness. And in this way, they copied the Jesus that they seek to follow. I think Lent is an opportunity for us to intentionally make our lives uncomfortable so that we, in examining our creaturely comforts and maybe even fasting from certain things, so that we might see Jesus more clearly already in our midst. And so maybe this Lent, you wanna get curious with like the religious leaders of Mark chapter seven about the comfortable aspects of tradition that you hold so, so tightly. Maybe this Lent you want to abstain from a creaturely comfort to remember the discomfort Christ embodied in coming into this world. Maybe this Lent you want to intentionally discomfort yourself and set an uncomfortable routine that creates space for you to experience the Christ that is already among you. Or maybe this Lent you want to intentionally discomfort yourself and pick up a mercy practice and seek ways to invite others on board with you. I think as we intentionally examine our lives this Lent and the comforts that we grip so tightly, I pray and hope and trust that we might experience more Christ more fully in our midst as well. And interestingly, as Jess and Ross just said, the way we begin this journey is both humiliating and rather uncomfortable, isn't it? In receiving the mark of the ashes on the fo- our forehead, we remember not only our futility, but our incapacity to make or save ourselves. And in doing so, we actually honor the one who made us and will save us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. As we enter now into a time of confession, um, Pastor Tiro will lead us in that with words on the screen, but as we do that, we invite you to sing with us um, the words, holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy, have mercy on us. Let's sing and pray together. Would you join me in this prayer following the words on the screen? Lord God, it is hard to think that we will want to die someday. 
we dream, make plans, and talk about what we'll do in the near future. We don't always think about what you want. Instead, we make choices that we think are good for us. But we are only here because you take care of us. We confess that we forget we need you all the time. We confess that sometimes we make choices that aren't what you want. We don't know what is best for our lives. Holy God, we are sorry for our sin. Help us to remember we live because of you. Help us to do what you want us to do. Through Jesus, our Lord, amen. described so far, we began our journey toward Easter with the sign of ashes. This ancient sign of ashes marks a few things for us as God's people. In the garden, for instance, a finite humanity created without sin is still reminded that God is the one in whom and on whom we depend for life. And in Egypt, as God's people languish in oppression, they are yet reminded once again that God is the one on whom and in whom they depend for life. And in the wilderness, after they've been rescued and they gather at Mount Sinai, God's people are reminded that God is the one on whom and in whom they rely for life. And in the exile, confronted with their own sin and brokenness and consequences, God's people are yet reminded that God is the one on whom and in whom they rely for life. And at the cross, as God's people, terrified, gather and also scatter from him, God's people are reminded yet again that it is God in whom and on whom they rely 
for life. And even as an imperiled church, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, God's people are reminded yet again that it is God on whom and in whom they rely for life. And now, even in our own time, in our own place, gathered together as God's people here and around the world, we are reminded as God's people yet again that it is on our God in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we rely and on whom we rely for life. We ourselves are dust, but our triune God is life for us, in us, and through us. And so this evening, we invite you to come forward to receive the ashes on your forehead. And as you do, you will be greeted by a pastor who will mark the sign of the cross with the ashes on your forehead and will speak these words over you as they do. Die to sin, but rise to life in Christ. Come.
As you surrender yourself to the discomfort of this season, may the comfort of Christ's presence be made known to you. As you go, may the love of that Christ, or the grace of that Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. Go in peace.